so good to be back, at least preaching back here at the worship services. I had a good little break. I was not taking a vacation the whole time. I was reading and strategizing and praying and did sneak in a little bit of family vacation there, but so excited to be back. Uh, I was moved by Peter Troutman, who has spent close to two decades ministering to college students at uh, NYU, and he posited this question uh, that the boomer generation, our grandparent generation, the question of their generation was, what is truth? And then I cannot believe that I have to include myself now into Generation X, what we would know as our parents' generation. For the grandparents' generation was what is truth. For Generation X, my generation is where is meaning. And then Peter shared that the question for the millennial generation is what do I do with my pain? Okay, what do I do with my pain? And so that struck my heart. And I guess I get some liberties to extend our Frequently Asked Question series, FAQ. This will be the last and final one. I want to answer that question today. What do I do with my pain? And so I picked a psalm full of really overwhelming pain. If you have your Bibles, please turn to Psalm chapter 6 with me. We're not going to read the entirety of the psalm, but Psalm chapter 6 verses 1 through 7. Okay, Psalm chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. This is our act of worship. I'll read it for us. Let's give our full attention to this. To the choir master with stringed instruments, according to the Shemineth, a psalm of David. Verse 1. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled, but you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you, and Sheol, who will give you praise? I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. This is God's word to us so far. Overwhelming, ongoing sorrow. The psalmist speaks of, I've been crying and crying and crying. And I've been crying every night on my couch or my bed. And it won't seem to stop. He does identify where some of this pain comes from is, a conspiracy, he has a lot of foes. People are speaking evil about him. In David's life, people are wanting to do evil against him. They're hunting him down and wanting him dead. Even his own son wanted to usurp the throne and become king in his father's place. A psalm riddled with sorrow and with enormous pain. But I do wanna tell you, it doesn't have to be social pain, it doesn't have to be an actual enemy, this is poetry, it is poetry. It's a poem, it's a song, so you can really apply it to any kind of pain you're going through. And we're gonna try to answer this question, what do I do with my pain? And we're gonna have the psalmist teach us how. Four aspects to it. Four aspects of what you and I should do with our pain. The first, very simple, 
but life-changing, and it's kind of a no-brainer, but I do have to spell it out. The first, you should put your pain into prayer. Okay, if you do have a pain, you should say it, you should express it, you should bring that to God in prayer. Now, even if you're not the verbal type, you're not the wordy type, thank God, God accepts all kinds of prayers. You know, Sonny and I, my wife and I, we try not to tell our daughters when they're crying. And you know that heavy, uncontrollable crying where you can barely breathe, like you can't breathe? My wife and I try not to tell them, hey, can you speak intelligibly to us? What is hurting you so bad? Why are you crying? We try not to say that because that is cruel. But you know, we do have a Father in heaven when we are crying and when we are at a loss of words and we can't put it into good words. You're not good with words, that's okay. Romans chapter eight says, there are sighs and groans too deep for words and we have a perfect, compassionate, heavenly Father who understands exactly what you're trying to say. Our Father in heaven translates everything you're feeling down to the seat of your soul. So the psalmist teaches us, whatever your pain is, you should put that into prayer. You should bring that pain into prayer before God. It may come as a surprise that praying your pain to God or crying to God or being disheveled and just not kept and just having a horrible day or a horrible week or month is not less Christian than praising God. To want to sing sad songs to God is not less spiritual than singing happy songs to God. No one is more spiritual in this room just because you can praise with a smile on your face and you're clapping and your body's into it. No, it's not any less spiritual if you're just sitting there motionless and you have nothing to say. Because you're grieving, you're mourning. You know, where do we get this notion that you should only come to God or Christ Central should be a church where you should only come to this church if you look nice or you act nice or you got cleaned up or you look like you've put it together? Where do we get that notion? I'll tell you where you don't get it from. You don't get it from the scriptures. You don't get it from the Psalms. You do not get that from God. Let me tell you, my friend, our Father in heaven does not reject the bloody, dark, disgusting parts or dimensions of you. He wants it and welcomes it because we have a Psalm full of it. My youngest daughter has said on more than one occasion, you know, daddy, daddy, on Sundays you dress up and kind of brush your hair and put on some kind of nice clothes. You actually look all right. She's even used the H word. Daddy, sometimes you look handsome. But on other days, dad, you look like a hobo. I've seen you at home, dad. You do not look good. And the question for us is as ugliness and pain 
and the days when you don't have it together, has that lost its place in the church? Pray your pain. Why? The psalmist did it. And God includes it in sacred scriptures. He wants it. He can handle it. He welcomes it. And he actually wants to do something about it. Prayer actually does make a life or death difference. Prayer actually makes a significant difference. When I do get some of these times off from having to prepare and preach and I get to actually have more extended, concentrated, I'll confess, I I get to pray more. I wish I could do that all the time, but it's refreshing to my soul that I get to read and imagine and pray more. And prayer really does make a difference. Let me tell you how. If you and I never learn how to pray your pain to God, you do not know or not familiar with bringing your pain to God on a regular, deep, personal basis, you are going to do something with your pain. Some of you are going to drink down your pain. You're going to overdrink your pain. Some of you are going to overwork your pain. You are that busy type. You can never sit still. You don't want to be silent. You don't want to think. Why is that? Have you ever asked yourself why you cannot be solo and still? Others of us will over-medicate our pain. Others of us will gamble away our pain. Others of us will outspend our pain. I just go on a shopping spree. That makes me feel better. Others of us will overachieve away our pain. Others of us will outprove our pain. The pain of what people said about you. You're not competent. You won't do well. So you just got to prove it. Others of us will overstress our pain, outthink our pain, outstrategize our pain, outfeel our pain. Whatever road you choose, whatever method you are doing right now, or numb away your pain, let me tell you this. If you don't know ever how to pray your pain, you're not asking God himself to do something about it. You're saying, I'll take care of it. And I have found that never works. Either we learn how to pray our pain to God or that pain will prey upon you. It won't go away because you haven't asked God to do something with it. Pray your pain. Say it like it is. Express what you're really, really feeling and going through. Peter Trauman, the other little scary statistic he gave us, he said that 70% of children who grew up in the church, at some point, 70% aren't ever going to come back. 70% by high school or college, they're not going to come back to the Christian faith. And I started to think and think and pray over that question too. Why would that be the case? I'll tell you part of it, because it's been my own experience, because I got rocked in college. You're going to have questions about your faith. Here's what it is. If you're never used to coming to a church or to a God where you can really be honest and share your pain, you can pray your addiction. You can pray that your marriage is collapsing. You can pray all that stress and anxiety that you feel. You can't sleep. You can't eat. You can pray your 
depression, your suicidal depression. If you cannot pray these things to God, if you cannot bring these things to God, here's what's going to happen automatically and you're already in the midst of it. Your Christian life is going to feel fake. I mean, doesn't it? Doesn't it feel fake? Aren't churches and small groups where you never want to talk about this stuff kind of fake? Because there's this huge rotting area filled with pain. that you don't know how to pray and you don't know how the church can help. So first, we gotta learn how to pray our pain. We gotta learn how to pray our pain. Every other road or medication you choose, that pain will begin to prey upon you. Here's a second, here's a second. Notice how the psalmist isn't just praying the intensity of his pain, the longevity of his pain. This is a public prayer. It's recorded in scripture. We're still reading it and singing it and meditating on it today. Publicly, he shares. So you gotta share your pain. That's the second aspect. And it's vital. Absolutely vital. Apostle Paul, in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, he talks about how the church should work what a healthy church should be like. And here's what he wrote in verses 24, the second half to verse 26. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. One of the main and greatest ways that God offers you help with your pain is not only you can pray it to him, but you can come to his people and share it. You can come to his people and share it. You know, on Friday, I saw Heidi Spurlock right before she went into surgery. She had her gallstones and gallbladder removed on Friday. Please pray for her total recovery. I heard she's doing well after the surgery. But I got a glimpse of her to pray for her and read a psalm with her. But in one hand, she was holding her son Christian's hand right back there. And in the other, she was holding Colton's hand, her other son. And then her daughter-in-law, Allure, was at the foot of the bed. And I'll tell you, I was a little startled. She's about to have surgery. She looked happy. <laughs> she looked strong. I told, I told her, I said, Heidi, why do you see someone strong? You're in good spirits. I know why. She had her sons. She had her daughter-in-law. She had people who love her. Right next to her. Pain is a lot better when you share it. You know, over the summer, I, I, I uh, have the privilege of being invited to this thing called uh, Global Leadership. Development Institute. That's how we get like a world-class speaker of us Guinness sometimes. And uh, on one of the lecture nights, which is a 40-day retreat for college students. How intensive is this? They get up and exercise every morning down at Vanguard University and then they basically listen and worship all God all day long for 40 days. 
And it's, it's, it's amazing, the transformation you see. And so one of the nights I, I went in there, it's my, like my fourth year going there, and I sat near the front, and this, this, this skinny, skinny, cute young gal, right around this height, came up to me, right next to me, and she looked at me, but this skinny gal had serious attitude. Um, sir, those seats, are those seats are reserved. I looked at her. Those seats are reserved for translators. Are you a translator? <laughs> Would you please move? So I got up. Everyone saw me and moved to the back. It's kind of embarrassing. <laughs> it's kind of embarrassing. But you know that day, Pastor Owen had chauffeured and driven me to GLDI and had sat right next to me. And so when she called me out, he had to get up and we looked like losers together. <laughs> we looked like losers together. He's big and tall. We both had to get up and go to the back and we sat down like sheepishly quiet in the back. That very night when I was introduced to speak, I looked at her and her jaw just dropped wide open, but <laughs> that's another story. But I cannot believe how many times some pain has felt so much better when it's shared. Guess what, my friends? That's why God gave us a church. Now, I am certainly not saying you have to come up here on stage and you got to share it to everyone. I'm certainly not saying we're going to print it in our bulletins. We're going to call you out on Facebook. No, depending upon the degree of your pain, you should share it with a few safe people. Roy Kim, our therapist, our counselor, in a two-part series, The Same Boat, the podcast, which I ask you to subscribe. Wonderful two-part series on what are the marks of a safe person, but... The church of Jesus Christ isn't meant to be that you have to share with everyone. Just, just pick one or two who are safe. And I want you to literally think about a safe. Like a bank, the vault, the safe in the back. It's quiet, it's hidden. You don't even know where it is. And the great thing about a safe is, is that it's safe, it's secret. What's inside is secret, it's locked. And my suggestion to you is if you want to share your pain, depending on what kind of pain that is, you don't need the entire church. You just need one or two who are like safes. Once you tell them a secret, you can trust that they're going to keep it a secret. I have that in my life. I must have that in my life. It's a layer of confidentiality and utter vulnerability. My wife is a safe. Sunny is an absolute safe. It makes her one of the best pastor's wives that I've known. Whatever secret comes her way, it's locked, done. No one's going to hear about it. And usually, the safest people are actually spiritual people. Do you know why that would be the case? Why would safest people be spiritual people? Because spiritual people guard their mouths, their hearts, and their attitudes. What do I do with my pain? The psalmist teaches us, pray your pain, share your pain. Here's third, 
What does God do with your pain? Now, what does God do with your pain? Every night, I drench my bed and my couch with my tears, David prayed. But he prayed it to God and he shared it with one another in a public prayer. But my friends, please do not neglect the aspect that prayer is a two-way street. Prayer is a dialogue with the living person, the living God. So on the one hand, we are encouraged to be utterly honest. There is no hard question that God can't take. There's no colorful language that God's going to be so thrown off and offended by, really. You can rage and bring everything to God. That's the one way. That's the one way. But there's a two-way. You see, there's this false, weird spiritual movement today that's all about get in touch with your pain, be authentic, express your feelings, trace back to the root of your pain, and it begins and ends just with that. Just be real with your pain. We're all about being real. But prayer doesn't stop with just you being real. Prayer starts with you being real with God and then you allow and expect God to be real with you. There is a response. You should expect that God listens. You should expect that God answers and you shouldn't even expect that God might change you. You see, Job, Job asked questions in prayer that a lot of us will never even think of asking. But after he raged and asked them all, after he lost his children, God shows up a two-way street, and Joe basically says, I am stunned to silence and left in awe. He is changed by the presence of the living God. What does God do in response to our pain in prayer? What does he do? I'll notice it. In verses two through five, when the, when the psalmist prayed with commands, he's so desperate, he wants immediate healing. He prayed, oh God, verse four, turn, oh Lord, deliver my life. Second half of verse four, save me for the sake of your steadfast love. Then verse five gives you a clue. For in death, in Sheol, I cannot, he says, I'm about to die. I feel like I'm about to die. And so the psalmist is as urgent, it's ER as it gets. This is most critical. He's so desperate, he commands God, you must do something about this right now in the midst of it. And what is it that God does? Here's what God does. Pay attention, here's what God does. God comes all the way down and he comes down to meet you in the middle of it. Okay, notice the psalm again. Please pay attention. Does God come down to the psalmist only after he stopped crying? Does God come down to the psalmist only after he feels like he's managed it a little? Does God come down only after he's figured out what this is about? Does God come down behind it or after it? No. You know when God comes down? He comes down to meet you right in the middle of it. Right in the middle of it. In the eye of a storm. Not when it's getting better, but maybe when it's at its worst. Last Sunday, I got to preach Psalm 13, another psalm of prayer. How long, how long, how long? I preached a different version. 
at a church called Living Hope Community Church. And I guess a gal had listened to that sermon and she texted me, well, wrote me on Messenger this week and she just encouraged me with these words. Thank you, Pastor Hell, that God meets us in the middle of our pain could not have been a more timely word in a week where my hometown of Houston was devastated by Harvey. I told her, thank you, thank you so much for encouraging me that God's word and God meeting us in the middle of pain actually comforts and carries people. You know, on Thursday, the senior pastor of Living Hope Community Church, the same church from where that gal wrote me, their senior pastor, Steve Chang, a friend of mine, a gospel partner of mine in Sola Council, a Southern California movement for collegians and young adults. He's age 55. On Thursday, he suffered a heart attack. I was shocked. I wept. I asked our entire session and staff to pray for him. On Friday, I went to go visit Heidi Spurlock, who's going through surgery. And then on Friday, again, back to Roy Kim, texted me, Harold, uh, please pray that the fires do not burn down my home. We're being evacuated. A little bit of a heavier week this week, is it not? But I'll tell you what that is. That's just called real life. That's just called, at one point or another, that's real life. I want to ask you do, you, do you have a God who handles real life with you? God never promised a pain-free life on this side of heaven. God did promise, though, I will meet you in the middle of pain. I will meet you right there. And here's how we know that God's going to meet us right there. We're going to go back to the Gospel of John next week, John 13. Pick up there, finish by this winner. But this concept of the glory of God and the author by the name of John talks about the glory of God. That sounds like to me, that's like the greatest thing you could see. The brightest, most brilliant, uh, maybe the best manifestation of what God is like. So he keeps talking about the glory of God, glory of God. And then here's the puzzle. When and where do we get to grasp the glory of God the best? Oh, of course, in the face of Jesus Christ, who is God himself. But no, 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 let's press a little further. When and where in the life of Jesus do you have the manifestation the greatest manifestation of the glory of God. And I'll tell you, John never says it's when Jesus walked on water. It's not when he multiplied bread. It's not when he casted out demons. It's not even when he outlawed and outwitted all of his enemies, the scribes and the Pharisees in a court. Do you know when the glory of God was shown the best? It was at Jesus' own most fearful, pain-ridden, lonely abandoned, hellish moment at his crucifixion. At his crucifixion is where John says, the glory of God can meet you there. There's no other God. Not Buddha, not Dalai Lama, not Muhammad, not the Pope. No saint, no hero who got wrecked like him.
There's no one, no other God who bleeds like him. There's no other God who suffers like him. There's no other God who can pray and sing psalms like this, like him. He is the king of pain. He is the king of pain. For a pain-ridden world, he came to take our pain. But he didn't just live and sing and experience and die in pain. No, he got up with an invincible new life, bursting with praise. And Jesus literally changes the course of history. Jesus literally changed the course of his own life from pain into praise, into a never-ending, pain-free, praise-filled glory of God. Jesus changed the course of his own life and the course of history. Do you know he can change yours too? Do you know he can change yours right now, right here on the spot? Here's how you do it. In the middle of any pain, call on the name of Jesus. Look for Jesus. Pray to Jesus. And pray until you find him there. A lot of you, one second prayer, God, I don't feel... Uh, doesn't work. Doesn't. I'm doing 30-day yoga right now to fix my back. I'm on day seven. It hurts. 30-day yoga to fix my back. Have you ever done 30-day prayer? Pray, call, look for Jesus until you find him there. That's what God wants to do with your pain. Here's the fourth aspect. Pray your pain, share your pain with saved people. What does God do with the pain? He meets you right in the middle of it. Here's the fourth, and I think maybe the most important for our church life and for myself. How can the church of Jesus Christ, a real community of Jesus Christ, handle one another's pain? How does the church best handle when someone else brings their pain to you? This week I went to the orthodontist with Elizabeth, the sassy, funny one who says I look like a hobo. But we went to the orthodontist to check out if she's gonna get braces. Sonia and I are thinking, praying God, please, please. We hope she doesn't need braces, because it's just expensive. But she went and they said, oh, took an x-ray. She's gonna need braces, but before braces, she has to extract four teeth. Now Elizabeth overheard those two words, extraction, and teeth. She overheard it. Four teeth have to be extracted immediately. Her big eyes started to get a little moist. And she said, Daddy, Daddy, is it going to hurt? Daddy, is that going to hurt? And I said, Elizabeth, they're going to give you something so that it doesn't hurt. What is that, Daddy? A shot? <laughs> I tried. I tried, but yeah, she's going to get a shot, which is called an anesthetic. It's anesthesia. What do you do when someone else brings you their pain? Don't just extract the tooth. Don't just tell them the truth. 
Don't just psychoanalyze. Don't just overtalk. Don't just get to a history of their, their life and why this happened. <laughs> How about a blanket of anesthetic love and acceptance and grace first? You know, I will tell you, I don't overdo that. I've underdone it. And if this church has taken any other characteristics or complexion of me, this is where we need to grow. How do you handle when someone else brings you their pain? You can never outdo, begin with, continue with, end with, assure, reassure, repeat, over and over and over and over and over again, I love you, I love you, I love you. I will never break my love for you. You belong to me. I hope in you. I pray for you. I want the best for you. You belong to me. Whatever your pain or sin or trouble is, here's an anesthetic. Because an anesthetic is what helps you go through intolerable pain to come. Grace, love, isn't this what Jesus precisely did when a woman caught in adultery was dragged to his feet by the Pharisees and the scribes and they wanted to trip up Jesus and see what are you gonna do with this woman? She's been caught in adultery. And then in verse 11 of chapter eight, what does Jesus conclude? Here's what he says publicly. Neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on, sin no more. Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Jesus had the best bedside manners of any physician or counselor you could ever meet. Because he offers grace, then truth. He absolutely covers you with love, then issues the law. My friend, do you know how shameful and scary it might be that when someone is caught in sin, for you to come along and they're actually brave enough and daring enough to actually tell you about it and you go straight to, let's extract the truth. Let's just extract the truth. Let me tell you the truth. Let me give you the law once again. No. The anesthetic that Jesus offered for a woman caught in adultery is the anesthetic that we must all offer to those in real pain. Some may ask, well, pastor, well, I caught my husband doing this. Oh, pastor, I saw my daughter or son doing this. And they do it again and again and again. You know, their pain is obviously clearly due to repeated moral failure. I mean, shouldn't I throw down the gauntlet sometime? Oh, absolutely, you should. There is a room for truth. But let me ask you this question back. If you ask the question, well, I don't think I should go so gentle with someone who's caught in sin. They haven't yet really repented or been remorseful. Can I ask you this question? What if Jesus was not gracious and gentle with you? What if Jesus was only gentle and gracious with you after you first recognized and repented and a change from your sin. Anesthetic, anesthetic. And we'll close with this. People need to be assured and reassured and reassured and reassured in pain of love and grace. But here's the second. 
Let's get the actual pain relief. Here's how someone's pain is going to start to feel better. Here's how someone's pain is going to start to feel better. I think I've shared with you this one illustration. I suffer from migraine headaches, and so my mom, my lovely, lovely mom, reading ancient Asian remedies, says, yeah, give me your hand, and she'll take my fingertips, and then she'll get a fork or a pen or a chopstick, and then she will just dig that, that, that utensil at the base of my fingernail as hard as she can. Literally, she'll just dig it right into there. And she'll keep pressing down. And I'm kind of screaming in pain. And she keeps going. and said, Harold, Harold, do you feel better? And I say, no. <laughs> she keeps going. And it's about to burst. It's about to bleed. She leaves marks when she has done this in the past. Harold, is your headache gone? Yeah, it is. But the reason why my headache gone is because it hurts so much more here. All you did was help me to displace or forget my previous pain. And some of us, deep, deep down really feel like you've got this, this deep traumatic pain and you really feel like if you bring it before God or you bring it before some people, God's going to dish out greater pain and that's the only way you're going to forget about this pain. <laughs> that people are going to be so unsafe, so unspiritual, so not anesthetic that it's going to bring you more pain on top of the pain you're having right now. And let me tell you of somebody who never does that. When Jesus comes to meet you in the middle of your pain, he doesn't come just to meet you in the middle of your pain. He came to take your pain upon himself and it crushed him. That's who the church of Jesus Christ should be. I read this week, 16 different Myers-Briggs personality types show love and care in distinctive ways. I'm most likely an ENTP, and I read the description of how I usually show love and care, and it's pretty much accurate to the T. Check with some of my best friends, it's accurate. Some people like to show up. Some people like to buy gifts. Some people like to take you out to dinner. Some people will go shopping with you. Some people will hug you. Some people will dazzle your mind with speaking new philosophies. Some people will even tell you how you feel better than you can articulate to yourself. They speak your language right back to you. But you know, these are all different personalities. But I'll tell you one way that we show love and care that cuts through all personality types and it is given as a resource for all the people of Christ. For all Christian people, no matter what your personality is, it is an instruction from Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 12, verse 9. Let love be genuine. Let love be genuine. How? Verse 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. So here's how we show the love and care, the way that Jesus would show. You ought to be a safe person, but when someone brings you their pain, please don't keep a safe distance. Please don't be too busy. Please don't be dismissive. Please try to enter into those shoes and try to walk with the person through the pain.
the way of Jesus to show love and care in his new community is you will weep with those who weep and you will rejoice with those who rejoice. I take it that that means that the part of someone else's pain becomes mine. So your heartbreak will become mine. Your tears will become my tears. If you feel so crushed and heavy and oppressed, when you walked into that room, oh, I hope you can walk out a little lighter because the other person now feels heavy and oppressed with you. People who are able to do this are called godly because they're most like God. They're most like Jesus who came to meet us now in the middle of our pain. They said, give me a piece. Give me a part. Oh, he took it in full. But we as his people will say, give me a part. This is what the church of Jesus Christ can and should do with your pain. Let's pray.